Sir Desmond Sterling, The Coves in Black. Episode 3 I've always been a broad-minded chap, open to most things with the exception of socialism and vegetarianism, but I'd never given much credence to the idea of aliens, not so much their existence per se, but that they would visit this world and, instead of approaching the elite, e.g. Her Majesty or Patrick Moore or John Junor, they'd waste their time with hillbillies in the arse end of nowhere in the colonies. But it was now looking as though they'd finally made contact with someone worth communicating with, e.g. yours truly, and I'd belly well forgotten about it. But could anyone blame me? after the diabolical liberties they'd taken with a sterling balloon knot. My first port of call was my old school chum Peter Nellington Dean, who'd been a defence wonk until his penchant for snap inspections of guardsmen's barracks got him quietly moved to agriculture, where the cows couldn't complain if he interfered with them. Nelly was as dapper as ever, his gleaming white hair swooped into an intricate arrangement to hide his bald spot, a green handkerchief popping up from his breast pocket, shoes so polished one could see a reflection of his underpants. We lunched at the Toss Pot in Greek Street, a discreet munching hole where Fleet Street hacks were too busy gazing longingly into their mistress's eyes to notice anyone else. I politely asked after his good lady wife, whose name neither of us could recall, then I leapt to the nub of the matter. What's the deal with flying saucers, Nelly? I asked. He barked with laughter, spilling some juice from his devil's seahorse starter on his old school tie. I gave him a quelling look. I wanted him to take this seriously. Not that I was telling him why I wanted to know, just using research for a forthcoming bestseller as my pretext. What's the official position of HMG vis-a-vis the whole little green man situation? I repeated, trying to sound nonchalantly professional while suppressing my eager yen for the truth. Nelly shrugged. Well, as far as I know, Her Majesty's government position is that it's all twaddle. In my time, I didn't see one document with any shred of proof that UFOs are real. But what about the people who claim they've been abducted? I asked. Americans, usually, he chuckled. Americans who eat lard by the bucket load and think Jesus was a dead shop with an AK-47. I stared hard at him. Was he just fobbing me off? I didn't think so. Lying wasn't Nelly's strong point. After all, it was his tendency to inadvisable honesty that got him into deep water when asked by Plod why he'd been standing at that particular urinal for quite so long. I admit that what he said chimed with what I had always believed. Some banjo-plucking redneck and a chum would get rat-arsed on illicit moonshine, sufficiently soused they would make the beast with two hairy backs, and then would justify their red raw posteriors the next day with some guff about Martians and their indiscriminate proctological tendencies. But then it had actually happened to me. I had been abducted. I had been probed in the most unseemly fashion. And I can assure you, dear listener, before a disgraceful vision pops up in your mind, that I had most definitely not been indulging in puddle jumping. Nelly changed the subject, 
and started to relate some gossip about ex-school chums of ours and the misdemeanours they got up to recently, resulting in whip withdrawal or fines, but never thankfully prison. Although for ex-boarding schoolboys, prison wouldn't be so very different, although with fewer genuine African princes. I had stopped listening to Nelly. I had drifted off into a dream world of my own, hypnotised by the clumps of mashed potato congealing on my plate. They reminded me of something, but I couldn't for the life of me think what exactly. I started pushing it around with my fork, trying to manipulate it into the shape I felt it should be. Eventually, it was arranged into two large balls of mash, joined at the hip. Finally, I poured a little gravy from the boat to cause a trickle from the top to the bottom. Yes, that was it. That was exactly what it reminded me of. But what exactly? I became aware that Nelly had stopped talking and was watching me with a bemused expression. I say, sterling old thing, why have you made a scrotum out of your mashed potato? It's not a scrotum, it's... I began to splatter, then stopped and looked at my culinary sculpture again. He was right, you know. It did look just like a chap's turkey neck. Not that I've been that close up with one, although they are hard to miss in Capdard, particularly when playing snooker. I recalled Nanny scolding me for playing with my food, so, much as I did then, I scooped the mash into my mouth and obliterated any remnant of my eccentric behaviour. I hastily changed the subject and asked whether it was true that the PM had been found in his office with... while dressed as a... Nelly's eyes lit up and he regaled me with sordid gossip about the latest oik to disgrace that sacred office. He soon forgot about my lapse into oddity while I brooded about what that potato sculpture signified. Perhaps I should pay another visit to that nutty mesmerist. Shortly after this, Nelly excused himself as he had to vote against free school meals for the poor or some other communistic threat. I was extremely browned off to find he'd left me the bill when he had a perfectly good taxpayer-funded expense account. I coughed up the necessary tin and took my leave of the restaurant. I was so distracted... I left an over-generous tip of a whole half-crown, and the waiter wasn't even a pretty lass. I was disappointed. Nelly seemingly knew bugger all. I'd assumed he would have been thoroughly debriefed, although not in the way one would have been on day one at big school, and would know all that was needed about the whole UFO shebang. Oh yes, I'd hoped he would say. That's the work of the hard-ons from Planage Snargle. Don't worry, I'll have a quiet word in the relevant orifice, and none of those bug-eyed rotters will dare lay a leathery finger on the sterling tackle ever again. While my mind was digesting it all, and my gut was doing the same to the tripe Tatari, I felt a warning tingle. My senses, trained to an almost superhuman heightened awareness in the SAS, were telling me that I was being watched. Obviously, as a celebrity, one often attracts the gawps of the oi polloi, but it's simple enough to deter their approaches with a quelling glance. But this was different. I sensed mild peril. 
Not real danger. After all, I have fought sharks in the Adriatic while delivering chocolates to a woman who later died from complications with diabetes and wrestled with elite ninja bastards in Kathmandu. No, this was just the inclination that something nearby was, as the common folk so amusingly say, a bit iffy. I lifted the collar of my jacket, lurked in the shop doorway and peered around. Nearly everyone in Soho looks suspicious. The homeless person swinging a bottle of moe and chatting into his mobile phone. A nun swinging her clone's own bag. The traffic warden having the audacity to ticket my roller. But I plucked my prey almost immediately. Two bizarre coves in black pinstripe suits, black waistcoats, black ties, black bowler hats perched on their heads and wearing, ludicrously, dark-tinted pince-nez. And it wasn't even sunny. Both of them were clutching furled umbrellas and briefcases. Black, inevitably. They realised I'd seen them, and they tensed. I sent mental instructions to every fibre of my being to prepare for fisticuffs. At which point someone collided with me. It was a middle-aged woman. She nearly fell, but grabbed my hand to steady herself. What were you going? She barked shamelessly. My gentlemanly instincts kicked in, preventing me from scolding the clumsy baggage. I was about to remonstrate, but she'd marched off. I raised my fist to shake it at her, when I sensed I was holding something, which I hadn't been a few seconds earlier. Surreptitiously, I glanced in my hand. There was a card. It read, Mavis Peebles, brackets, miss. Ufologist, truth-seeker, nothing doubted, followed by a telephone number. Well, wasn't this a turn-up for the books? I stared over the road. The black-suited men had gone. Perhaps they were just on their way to a funeral. Had they seen my collision with that woman? I knew what I had to do. I popped into the coach and horses for a stiffener. That evening, I phoned Miss Peebles. I didn't want anyone else to hear, so I picked the lock of the main office at Aberdon's, my club, one of many tricks I learned from a chauffeur who was once in my employ, and used the secretary's phone, which I eventually found under several back issues of People's Friend, including one which profiled yours truly, the reporter was an odd young woman whom I bedded afterwards. She had a morbid fascination with my bathroom. In the published interview, she kept banging on about my avocado waterworks. But I digress. Clutching the phone with my hanky to avoid fingerprints, I dialed the number on my card. A gruff voice answered. I said who I was and thanked her for the card. Her reply was simple. Tomorrow night, 10pm, the devil's ball sack outside the village of Quigley Godfrey. Don't be followed. Sir Desmond Sterling was written and performed by Anthony Keach.